We are officially kicking off kind of our summer here at Sound City Bible Church. I know for those of us in Seattle, it feels like summer's been here for six weeks already, amen? Like, uh, usually this is the time of year when we have hot weather and sunshine. We've already had it for a month and a half already, so... I hope that you're enjoying your summer so far. And what that means for us is that I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break out of preaching every single week. I'm still going to be around. I'm not uh, taking off for a whole month, but I'm going to be taking a break from preaching for about a month, really looking forward to launching into the Lord's Prayer in August, and then really looking forward to starting our long study of the book of Hebrews starting in September. And if you're keeping track, it's now 54 sermons. It's about how many sermons I think it's going to take us to get through the book of Hebrews. So um, it'll take us a good chunk of time. We'll take some breaks here and there, but uh, really looking forward to launching into that. But for the next month, next four weeks or so, we are going to have a a series of guest teachers and some kind of one-off speakers and some one-off teachings. And so today, it's my distinct privilege. You probably already saw them out here playing music with me earlier, but my mom and my dad are with us here today visiting from Alaska. So come on out, guys. And... um, These these guys have been just like parents to me, and... uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, my mom and dad, have, you know, uh, uh, my dad is an a, a engineer by day, uh, working, and you'll hear more about that in his story, but then a, a volunteer pastor at his church by all nights and weekends, because that's what volunteer pastors do. And uh, my mom's a worship leader and a piano teacher, and so we've always played music together as a family, and it's a joy to get them to come and, and play. I told my dad, I said, you can stay at my house on my couch if you play drums and preach all day at all three services, and he said yes. So get a hot dog you do get a hot dog, yes, one, just one. Don't want you sleepy for the 5 p.m. tonight. So um, here's what I want to do. I'd like to, he'll, they'll be sharing a little bit more of their story, but I'd like to just pray over my dad as he uh, begins our time of teaching today. And uh, if you would just join with me in prayer, you can raise a hand if you want or just bow your head and agree in prayer. But let me pray for these guys. Scott, thank you so much for uh, my mom and my dad getting to be here with us. It's such a joy uh, to be able to serve Jesus together, God. And it's such a joy for me to get to share with this church family that I love so much, uh, these people who have taught me so much about you. And God, uh, there's no such thing as a, a perfect family or or perfect individuals, but God, I am really blessed and really fortunate to have been uh, raised in a house where the Bible was open and where sin was repented of and where grace was not only talked about, but lived out. And so God, I ask today as, as my dad uh, begins to teach, God, I pray that you would fill him fresh with your spirit. God, would you anoint him to be able to speak your truth and your words uh, with your heart? And God, would you give all of us open ears, open hearts, teachable hearts that we might uh, behold wonderful things in your word <clears throat> and that we might be challenged and grown and changed by your spirit and help us all to have eyes fixated on Jesus in whose name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right. Welcome my mom and dad, Brian and Paula Gray. Just a little quick uh, bio for you. Um, So I I met this uh, wonderful lady when we were 14, started dating at 16 and married at 18. And um, this fall we celebrate our 37th anniversary. And... uh, we have lived an exciting life together, grew up together, uh, done many things. We played music together. We have uh, planted a church together, started a nonprofit, done all kinds of things. But uh, at the center of that was uh, we have um, raised not only Aaron, who you know, but uh, three children. We have a daughter and then a younger son. And so if I could uh, see this little graphic here, we have three adult children who are married and each have had four children. So we have 12 
grandchildren, and that's been great. And then you'll hear a little bit of my story, but along the way, God called us to step in as uh, parents to a lot of other kids that were falling through the cracks. Some lived with us and were foster children. Some lived in kind of questionable homes, and we were mom and dad to them, and we have this. This is just a portion of it. Last February, when Aaron came up for a little break, uh, we gathered a part of the tribe and uh, had a, a little group picture, but there's many, many more that weren't at this event, so we have this very large extended family of children and grandchildren, and Paula has been my partner in all of that, and it's been a joy to do that. So thanks, Paula, for your partnership in the gospel. Just uh, by way of a little, little more on the bio, so uh, you know, Aaron mentioned I'm an engineer, and that's important for two reasons. Uh, first is, you know, periodically he will make self-deprecating jokes about uh, his nerdiness, and I just have a word for him that you have nothing were it not given to you from your father, okay? And um, and the same is true of me because my dad was an engineer and Aaron's younger brother is an engineer, so the nerd gene is firmly implanted in the Gray family line. We're there. But more importantly, um, I'm here to kind of bring some challenge today, and my challenge is for the entire church body because uh, I have been following Christ for 30 years, I have served as a volunteer pastor and elder for 22 years of that, and I have worked a full-time job as an engineer all that time, and it's my conviction that we need all the people in the church, regardless of your vocation, to be part of the mission. And we're going to talk about relate what I call relational evangelism today. And, um, you know, the buzzword nowadays is mission and missional lifestyle and you got to be on mission and missional community and mission, you know, and evangelism maybe has gotten a little bit of a tarnished reputation from some misapplication. And, but it's in the Bible. It's a good word. And I want to redeem that word today. Okay. So I'm coming at it more from the status of evangelism. And I say relational evangelism. You'll get that later uh, because I think that's key to doing it well and to kind of reclaiming and redeeming the good in evangelism. And so I'm uh, going to give you kind of a three-part why, what, and how message today. And the how will be told in the form of a couple of stories of just how this is lived out in a practical way. How do we do relational evangelism? And the uh, what is going to be kind of the, the main teaching. And I've got some uh, graphics to kind of burn it in your brain and traumatize those of you who hated geometry as a child. And then uh, the why is because Jesus said so, okay? And that really is the bottom line. I mean, he's the master, he's the Lord of the universe, and if he said it, we ought to pay attention. And I'm going to start with um, the, uh, what is called the great commandment. But, you know, people from all walks of life, even people who are not Christians, will very often claim that Jesus was a wise man, that he was a good teacher, maybe the greatest teacher, maybe the most influential teacher. So a lot of people will profess Jesus' wisdom and his teaching. Now, if the greatest teacher who ever set foot on the face of the earth said, this is the most important thing, we need to pay attention to that, okay? That is of utmost importance. So that's where we're going to start. In Matthew 22, we have a story here. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus is talking to, the, the, the law and the prophets was the scriptures that existed at that time, okay? The New Testament hadn't been written yet as just being lived out in the person of Jesus. The law and the prophets was all of the Old Testament, the scriptures, and the audience he's talking to, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, that was all they lived and breathed. That was the essence of life to them. They spent their days memorizing scripture, teaching scripture. The scribes would transcribe the scripture. It was what it was all about to them. And so when he said all the law and prophets hang on this, to that audience he was saying the meaning of life. Whatever is important, it all hangs on these two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. And so I use this little graphic here to kind of display that. And the vertical axis, for those of you who have algebra trauma, is our vertical relationship to God, and the horizontal is the relationship to our fellow man, to our neighbor. And just to clarify at the beginning, relationships are essential to this because he said it's about love, okay? Love has to have an object, and so that love is worked out in the context of a relationship between two or more individuals, okay? So we have a relationship of loving God, our vertical relationship, but we don't initiate that. First John tells us that we love God because he first loved us. He's the initiator. He starts it. He chooses us. He sets his affection on us. He fills our heart with his love to transform us, and then we respond to that love with our adoration to him, okay? So God initiates, and when we realize what he's done for us and how he loves us, we respond, and we love God. But then, as our heart is filled and we are satisfied in that relationship, that vertical with God, then we are called to take that love and share it with our neighbor, to share it with one another. Now, this would all be great and easy, except that um, Jesus likes to blow up our simple paradigms because it's really easy for me to love my family, my close friends, the people in my community group or my church, you know, and those that are close to me. But, um, you know, for sake of time, we're not going to uh, read it today, but you can read it uh, later in the week. It's in the notes that we have for you. But in, in Luke chapter 10, we have another version of this story. And this time, we have a uh, cocky young lawyer that tries to engage in a little uh, battle of wits with the smartest man that ever set foot on the earth, and it doesn't go well for him, okay? And so he asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus flips it back on him. He says, well, what do you say? What's written? And the cocky young lawyer answers, well, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus says, well, that's good. Do this and you will live. But then it says, wanting to justify himself, he says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? He stepped in it, okay? And Jesus tells a parable to kind of blow up this religious, young, self-righteous lawyer's paradigm. And he says, well, you know, here's a story. The one we know is the parable of the Good Samaritan. But using the word Samaritan, I don't think does it justice in this day and age because we don't understand it. So, you know, uh, substitute Syrian or Palestinian or Iranian or something and a Jew, okay? Think where there's deep hatred and enmity and 
you know, between the Jews and the Samaritans, there was religious bigotry and, and bias, there was racial bias, and there was social no-contact rules, okay? Bible says Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And so Jesus tells the story of a Jew who's traveling, gets set upon by robbers, uh, beaten within an inch of his life, and left in the ditch to die. And two of his fellow Jews do the, you know, I don't want to get involved, it's too much liability, you know, and they walked on the other side of the road and they just kind of skirted around the whole scene and went on their way. And a Samaritan, the enemy, the one that we don't like, the guy from the other side of the tracks, stops, okay? And in the way Jesus tells the parable, there's some key points in there. The guy stopped. He interrupted his schedule. It says he looked on him with compassion. He picked him up. He took him somewhere, so he just blew his whole schedule up, turned around, took him to a place where he could be taken care of, and he paid the bill for it, okay? So it cost him something to show compassion. So Jesus tells this story that probably really, really rubbed the fur the wrong way on this religious ruler, and then he asks the guy, which one of these was a neighbor? And the guy couldn't bring himself to say, well, the Samaritan, obviously. No, one who had mercy. And Jesus said, do likewise. So now I take this picture of our horizontal love relationship, and I add a little two-way street to it, okay? Um, this is how we live out our human life most of the time, us and them, okay? Now, this is a result of the fall, okay? Ever since the original sin in the garden, there has been enmity between brothers, you know? I mean, it unfolds right in the beginning with a brother murdering his brother. There's an us and a them. They have something, I want it, you know? Uh, we do it this way, they do it that way, and there's this bias and uh, you know, jealousy and stuff. So we polarize into us and them. And um, wars are fought over and all kinds of things. But with us in the church, I would say, maybe we don't have hatred and enmity towards them, those people, but we may have a lot of indifference. We have us and there's them, the people who believe different things and live their life in a different way. And... Um, Jesus just comes on the scene and just says, this is not okay, okay? The point of the parable of the Samaritan is, no, I have not called you just to love the people who are going to love you back and the people that you get along with and the people you're close to and where there's a reciprocal relationship. No, because in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I tell you to love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you, you know? And so Jesus comes and just blows this whole us and them paradigm away. So what I like to do to show how these relationships play out is I make a triangle out of it, okay? And this is like an equilateral triangle. And on the three corners, I define the three aspects of relationship where this love God and love one another is lived out. So at the top, we have our up relationship. That's our relationship to God. On the right-hand side, I have the, I call it the in relationship. That's the relationship we share with our Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is unique, it is different, it is something special that we have. And the out relationship is how do we relate to and show love practically to the world that's outside of the Christian faith, those who do not share what we have. And so those are the three things. So now let's throw some other words on here. For the up, I like to use the word worship, and very often we kind of narrow that down to just singing songs. That's part of it. But worship is much, much more than that. It is studying scripture. It is a prayer life. It's a life of devotion. It's taking communion. It's, it's anything that we have that is part of that me 
reaching God, expressing my love to him, receiving from him. That's the vertical relationship. And I'll throw that all under the category of worship. Then on our in relationship with our fellow Christians, I have two words up there, fellowship and discipleship. Fellowship is an intimate relationship that we should have because we've been adopted by God. We have one father. We are brothers and sisters, and there should be a unique nature to our relationship. And in that fellowship, we have people that we can share our fears and our, and our secrets and the, the dark things in our life. We have people that we can call when our life goes off the rails and they'll be there at the drop of a hat, you know, and we're that for them. That's fellowship. That's a committed relationship that stands by each other through thick and thin. Also, discipleship. That's where this occurs is within the context of the church, okay? We have people, when we come into the kingdom, that teach us, and they model Christianity for us, and they answer our questions, and they teach us how to study Scripture, and they disciple us, and then as we mature, we move into where we're doing that for others. And all of that happens in that corner of the triangle. That's fellowship and discipleship. And on the other side, we have mission and evangelism. And, um, you know, the why do we need that? Well, if we truly believe the Bible, it says that we're made in the image of God. And God has been on mission since he created us. And the Bible is a continual story of a loving, merciful, gracious God pursuing rebellious, stiff-necked people and drawing them to himself, showing love to them, and, and redeeming broken humanity, which is ultimately culminated at the cross and the empty tomb, okay? So God is on mission. We're made in his image, and we need to be a part of that. And that's where we go out to people who do not share the things that we have, and in a very, very practical way, we do deeds, which can be service where it costs us something, like the parable in the Samaritan, and we proclaim. We tell them the story of Jesus and the testimony of what he's done in our life and those kinds of things. So it's, it's words and deeds lived out to a broken and lost world. Now, I have a picture here that shows um, where we start, okay? So on the next one, uh, this is most of us. If, if we got saved as an adult, um, this is what we look like, okay? This is my story, okay? You have a large circle of friends who are not Christians, and, and if Jesus has set you on fire, you're excited, you want to tell them about it, so you're living on mission, man. It's all about that. But you don't have a whole lot of relationship with God. You haven't learned how to pray or read the Bible or much of a worship developed, and you really don't have much depth of relationship with fellow Christians, so your other two dimensions are kind of weak, but boy, you're, you're all out, and these people are kind of at risk, okay? They, they, it's, it's pretty easy to spin out because their relationships are imbalanced, and that's kind of reflected by the triangle being kind of smaller and a little skewed. It's a little less stable. Um, but they're really prolific evangelists. I mean, if, if you can harness that, it's great because they've got a whole network of relationships of people. Now, after five years, most of us start to look like the next picture, okay? <laughs> what happened? I've been reading the Bible. I've been going to church. I've been worshiping. I know all the songs by heart. I, uh, you know, I, uh, I love Jesus. It's all good. You know, I've got a good prayer life. I have really close friends. People have discipled me. Now I'm discipling other people. Boy, that up and that in relationship are happening. They're doing good, but I don't have any friends that aren't Christians. You know, I, I, I've kind of lost that contact with the broken world. And this is where most of us, after we have matured for a while, end up living. And again, 
I point out that triangle's kind of scrawny and kind of unstable, okay? And um, this is kind of the natural tendency that we drift toward, and, um, and I think there's a couple reasons for it. Number one, it costs you something to go out and share the faith, okay? It can cost you your reputation. You can be rebuked and rejected. It will cost you money if you're gonna actually put up and take care of somebody like the parable teaches us. I mean, it costs you something, and I need to be kind of prodded to do that. And that's what, you know, Hebrews tells us to spur one another along to love and good deeds, and I need that from my fellow Christians to prod, and I'm here unashamedly to kind of give you a, a sharp poke in the ribs to say, remember, you were made to be on mission. You've been called of God to serve him and represent him to a lost and dying world. So we need a little bit of that. But I think the other reason evangelism has kind of gotten dropped by the wayside and gotten a bad name is because we've used some poor methods. And, and I've used some really, really poor methods. And, and uh, accosting random strangers on the street corner in the shopping mall, that was my first street with this. A guy took me out to a shopping mall. I'm scared to death. And he throws me at this guy in a nice suit, this businessman, hyper chain smoking, you know, just kind of like this wound up uptight guy. And, and I just try to cold drop it on him. And, and the guy just stands up out of his chair like, I don't talk to people about religion and politics. Get out of my face. And it's like, Oh, that didn't go so well, you know. And uh, you know, knocking on people's doors on Saturday morning, that's really a nice thing to do, you know. We've done a lot of things not so well, and I think we need to recapture something, and that's why I approach the relational aspect of evangelism because we're really doing what Jesus modeled. Okay, Jesus went out and met people and drew them into his life. He established relationship, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God and they followed him, okay? And when he sent his disciples out, and we read that in the book of Acts, that's what they did. They went out, they encountered people, and they went where he, the Holy Spirit directed them, and they built relationships, and they told people about the kingdom of God. And some rejected it, and some received it, okay? So um, I'm going to show you back again to the stable triangle here. So I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that our life is stable, big, healthy, balanced, when we are living out these three types of love-based relationships, when we are worshiping God, when we have fellowship with our brothers, and when we are living in some capacity on mission representing Jesus. And so in this one, I kind of show an, a natural flow. As I worship God, as I am deepening my love relationship with God, I tend to love what he loves. And Jesus loves his church, okay? We're his bride, okay? So that causes me to love the church, and I grow in my relationship with my brothers and sisters, okay? But then if we together prod each other and inspire each other, to let's go do something, we have a little more confidence to go out, and that, again, is the biblical model. Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. You don't have to go knock on some stranger's door by yourself. You, know, you go out and you tackle some project. You go serve. Uh, you go take food to some homeless people down at the park. Whatever that thing is, you go and you do it together. Now, here's what I find, and this is pretty cool. When I get out of my comfort zone and, and touch the life in a meaningful relationship, with an 
a non-Christian. In the parable, it says that the Samaritan had compassion on the broken down person. When I get in touch with a person whose life is broken down, when, when I meet somebody who does not have the things that I can tend to take for granted, you know, I got close friends who love me. If, if, if I'm in a crisis, I can call a number of people day or night, and they'll pray for me. They'll come over and they'll take care of my needs if I need some help with something, and I have that with them. I mean, people out there in the world don't have that. I've got people I can share my struggles when I struggle with sin and temptation. I've got people I can be honest with and share that, and they will not judge me. They will love me. They'll challenge me. They'll give me biblical counsel, and they'll pray for me, okay? Those are things that we could kind of take for granted, but you know what? The lost and dying world out there doesn't have that, and so every day it's putting on my game face, trying to act like I got it together, you know, looking out for number one, and, run. and on the inside, outside might look good, inside, they're dying, okay? They're dying. And what happens for me is when I engage relationally with a person who doesn't have the things that I have, my appreciation for what I have is increased, okay? I realize how much I have to be thankful for, how much Jesus has done for me, and it causes me to worship, okay? So it feeds, okay? Uh, my love of God gives me more love for the church. My love for the church helps me get confidence to go out and go on mission, and then I am touched when I see what happens and I go back and I worship God. Now, let's take the flow of the other direction. So if I am worshiping God, I will get in touch with his heart. And what is God's heart? Well, it's very clear. God so loved the world. He gave his only son, whoever believed. You know, God has a mission at the core of his heart to love lost humanity and to reach them with the gospel. So when I love God, I am more motivated to go out on mission, okay? And then, eventually, I happen to be in the right place where I get to be a part of something cool that God does. And I see a broken life restored. I see a lost person saved. I see something really amazing happen. And what I want to do is I want to run back to my peeps and say, hey, look, this is cool, man, you know, and you got to meet my friends. And, and so I bring them back in. And then they, I want them to join my fellowship and become a part of it. And together, we celebrate the good thing that God has done, and we worship him. So, you know, it can go either direction, but the reality is if our life is composed of love for God, love for our fellow Christian brothers and sisters, and love for a lost and dying world, it's healthy, it's strong, it's balanced, and it, and it feeds itself, okay? Now, Again, I come back and say, well, we kind of dropped the ball on the out component, okay? And I think, you know, maybe just some bad methodology. Maybe we've just gotten a little complacent, whatever that thing is. So I'm here to bring a little challenge, say, let's do it. And I'm going to tell you by way of story how I see it working out relationally, which I think is the most natural and, uh, and really ultimately fruitful way to do it relationally. And... Um, I'm going to do that by way of two stories, okay? The first one is how I was a recipient of it, and the second one was um, how it played out through me. So um, uh, Paula and I are both first-generation Christians, and uh, I was raised in an um, intact, solid family. I'm the youngest of four boys, um, and we were a moral, religious family, okay? We had the do's and don'ts and the right and wrong, 
And uh, we went to church most Sundays, but we went to a very dead church that didn't preach the gospel. And there was never any connect the dots for me that I'm a sinner and that I need a savior. And, and I was a self-righteous, spoiled little kid. And I remember as I, like eight, nine, 10 years old, somewhere when I was young, looking at uh, the lyrics to Amazing Grace and the line that says that saved a wretch like me. And this thought went through my mind, like, man, I wonder what his problem was, you know? And, and just this very judgmental, and I'm glad I'm not like him. And uh, just this little mini Pharisee, you know, self-righteous, moralistic, religious uh, kid in suburbia, you know? And, uh, and uh, that didn't last too long because what happened was at a young age, at 13, I, I uh, got introduced to drugs and I dove headlong into that whole counterculture scene. And I'm a person, I describe myself as not having a volume control. I just kind of have an on-off switch. So once I was in, I was all in. And uh, for a few years, I, I thought I was living the dream, man. I got my first rock band, started playing gigs, and, and just kind of living the party scene. And, um, but, you know, sin has this interesting way of working. It all seems good. Come on in. Come on in. It's enticing. Until it gets its hook in you, and then it ain't that fun anymore. Okay, and in my late teens, I was getting into more uh, frequent use of harder drugs, and eventually got myself hooked on cocaine, and um, and then my life turned from oh, it's a party to nightmare, day in day out nightmare. And I remember, you know, I could never count the number of times waking up like on a Saturday afternoon, like I will never do this again, you know, and. Um, That'd last all of like three or four hours, and I'd be back at it, you know? And I'm just trapped in this cycle of addiction, and my life was getting dark and hopeless and miserable, and I was ashamed of what I'd become, and I, powerless, I couldn't control it anymore, and I had become that wretch that I mocked as a young child. And into the middle of that dark scene, God did a really cool thing. Um, Paula uh, became pregnant with Aaron, and uh, she wanted to have a home birth, and uh, she found this midwife, and the midwife's name was Vicki Penwell. And we entered into this relationship with this midwife, and we describe her as the first real Christian that we ever met. And then Paula kind of adds a little footnote to that. She said, well, we probably met some other Christians, but they never blew their cover, you know. <laughs> and um, this one was a real deal. And um, two things really stood out to me about her. She genuinely cared about us. I mean, when I showed that us and them, I mean, she was a strong Christian. She was kind of a natural, you know, health, all that. I'm, I'm a cocaine addict that plays in bars to all hours of the night. And, and I mean, I, I was on the other side of the tracks. And she genuinely loved us and cared about us and built a relationship with us. The other thing that really stood out was she talked about God like he was real and personal, like she had a relationship with him, okay? And that was foreign to me. I had this concept of God as some energy field or force or distant cosmic thing or something, you know, out there, but not like she had two-way conversation. It sounded like God talked back to her, you know? I mean, it was like, just, mm, you can't comprehend that. And um, so it was very intriguing. Well, she drew us into relationship, and she kept inviting us to her church. Now, she went to a high-step and charismatic church, um, I, you know, I, I, as a kid, I'd gone to this kind of dead religious church where they ground on an organ and there was a choir with robes and stuff. Well, these, these guys had like guitars and drums and it was kind of the Jesus people scene and loud, loud music. And, um, 
you know, heavy-duty preaching. The, the pastor was a, a great man of God. Um, he, he told me later that he was virtually illiterate and didn't know how to read very well, and the only book he ever read was the Bible. So he, you know, Bible says it, you know. And so, um, so what was happening over like a three-year period, we're coming inconsistently, but we're going to this church. And, and, and here's my scene. I am working from 10 p.m. till 4 a.m., playing drums in a nasty bar. And, and then usually doing my bad behavior for a couple hours after that. So I go to sleep at 6, 7 in the morning, wake up two hours later, uh, just feeling like death warmed over, and, and we'd pack it up and go to church. And, and I'd go in there, bloodshot eyes, still reeking of alcohol, just, ugh, you know, and sit through, and the, I mean, the loud music and people playing tambourines is just like having spikes driven in my head with a hangover, you know, somebody behind you just, you know, and, and so all this stuff, and then this guy just preaching for an hour, just screaming, pounding the pulpit, you know, that kind of preaching, and, and it'd just be like, ugh, you know, and we'd drive away from there, and, and Paula would go like, um, sometimes, and we'd have this conversation where it's like, man, that stuff that guy said really kind of rubbed me the wrong way, it didn't feel very good, but it really seems right, doesn't it, you know? And, and so this thing that just seems so bizarre, like when I tell the story, like why would a guy get up in that condition and go to a church and make himself that? Well, now I understand. The Holy Spirit was drawing me, okay? He was working on me. He was pulling. He was drawing. But that's only part of the story. The Holy Spirit was using our friend Vicki, and she was the human representation of Christ that was inviting us and befriending us, and when we'd leave there with our heads spinning, like, what was that all about? She would answer our questions, and she would just stay in relationship. So this thing went on, this tug-of-war, for three years, okay? And by the end of that time, I'm dying. It's like, it, it was bad enough living in just a hedonistic excess, but trying to do that and try to pretend to be a church guy one day a week, oh, that was awful, you know? And I just finally got to the point where it's like, I can't go on anymore. And, and there was some genuine fear there, too, because I had a couple of friends that had been shot and a couple that had overdosed and, and a couple that had gone to jail. And I knew, you know, I got like, die, go to jail. Jesus, hey, that door looks better, you know. And, and so um, here I am on, um, is a Wednesday night, May 1985, and I am at the end, end of it all. And I just said this sincere, feeble prayer, Jesus, I've screwed my life up. It's not worth much to me. If you want it, you can have it. And then I got baptized in freezing cold water. I never, if people ask, you've been baptized? Yes. <laughs> and um, I was born again. But it wasn't just the spiritual birth. There was a physical transformation that took place in it because my desires changed. Okay? He did something inside of me, um, re started rewiring my mind, rewired the, the body chemistry. One time, about 10 days after my salvation, uh, some friends stopped by and they broke out some drugs and I indulged and I felt horrible. Instead of it being this pleasurable experience, it was miserable. And I remember that and I just don't God, oh, get me out of this night and, and I am done with this stuff. And I am very uh, happy to report that uh, I have lived in the freedom that Christ purchased for 30 years, uh, free of addiction. Now, my brain was pretty fried, and God had to do a, a work to put it back together and make the things work again, you know. Um, 
but he was doing that. And I had this experience where it was the first time that I, I really knew that God spoke to me. And I'm trying to read through the New Testament and trying to get all this stuff and understand it. I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this, for me, is a pretty life-defining passage. So we're going to read it together here. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Now, this was for me the hinge verse in 17. And what happened was, um, I, um, I, I'm not a real, I'm a left-brained engineer, okay? I am, I'm lucky if I have one dream a year that I can remember. Uh, I don't see visions. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not really wired that way. But I had a vision, okay? And I'm reading this scripture, and I'm just trying to understand what the gospel was, and I still struggle with a lot of shame. You know, I was grateful that I was forgiven, and, or grateful that I was freed from my addiction, okay? But I carried a lot of shame for all that I had done wrong, and, and I just felt like a horrible, um, just outcast of a person. And I'm reading this verse, and God gave me a, a visual image. And what it was was a, a whiteboard. And this is 1985. Whiteboards were kind of new in the classroom. And on that whiteboard was all of these sins written on it. And it was all things that I was guilty of, you know, the, the addictive life, the lying, the stealing, the cheating, the false religious beliefs, the mocking other Christians, uh, sexual immorality, all these things that I was absolutely guilty of. And as I'm looking at this image, I'm, I'm literally feeling kind of sick to my stomach. It's like, yes, I am, every one of those I am guilty of, and I got no excuse, and I'm just like, ugh. And then out of the corner of the image, this hand comes in, just a hand, that's all I see, with an eraser, and it starts erasing all those words off that board. And as it did, it was like the perfect whiteboard. There was no little trace, no outline left behind, no words. It was white. And it was a picture of Isaiah chapter 1. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So all those red letters condemning me of things that I was guilty of and deserved to be condemned for were wiped away. And I understood in that moment I was forgiven. And I think um, just who I am and the way God works uniquely, he knew I needed some kind of just completely unexpected, visceral experience. It, it just was like I was just turned inside out. I understood I have a new identity, okay? I am no longer that person that that whiteboard represented. I am a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. I'm not an addict. I'm not a renegade. I'm not a, a, a dirtbag like I felt like I was. I am a Christian. I am born again. And all those years I had mocked and made fun of Jesus freaks and born-againers and everything. I, I'm one of them now. Whoa, check that out. So then reading on here, so this, I, the, the hinge verse is verse 17, then in verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, 
God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is referred to often as the great exchange. The perfect, sinless son of God comes and doesn't just bear the weight of our sin, but actually becomes sin. He embodies our sin on the cross so that we could embody a righteousness that we can't earn and that we don't deserve. Amazing truth. And so because of that, if we're living in that, we're called to be ambassadors. Now go back to the first verse, if you can go to the next slide there. For the love of Christ controls, or in the NIV, I really like it, uses the word compels, because that's what it felt like, compels us, because we've included this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I got it, okay? I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm born again, and I no longer own my life, okay? The truth was that that feeble prayer that just kind of rolled off my lower leg, God, take my life if you want it, he he took it. He meant business. I'll take that, okay? And I no longer own it. I belong to him. And because of what he's done for me, I am controlled or constrained or compelled, moved to go and serve him and to be an ambassador and to do it. So once this happened, I have this whole experience and I get it. I just went out and went crazy on my friends Okay, and and my friends were like musicians and druggies and drug dealers and bartenders and you know just that other side of the tracks crowd. And I'm like, you need to get saved. Jesus is awesome. And they're like, and you're crazy, man. Get away from me. And uh, and so we kind of ran off most of our friends in a pretty short amount of time, except for one. One friend remained my friend, and then we lost touch. We moved to different towns, but. 15 years after I was say who's my favorite guitarist I ever got to play with. Sorry, Aaron, you're, you're number two. Yeah. Cause, <laughs> and um, anyway, and Aaron was part of it 15 years later. We got to see him come to Christ. I got to perform a wedding for he and his wife, and, uh, or his girlfriend at the time, now his wife. And, for, and we've actually, Aaron and Paula and he and I have gotten to play some music together as, uh, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, he's been living for the last 15 years now, um, serving God and raising his children and uh, to know Jesus, and, and, and it's awesome, you know. But um, I'm going to flip this around. So it was a relational compassion thing that happened from Vicki to Paula and I embracing us, sharing the gospel. And then I just want to tell one story of, of how this played out in our life. There's many, many, many like it, but... Um, Aaron was uh, on a little soccer team when he was five years old, and summer season came up, and they didn't have a coach. And I said, sure, I'll do it. I'd, I'd do anything. Um, I'm not athletic uh, by any stretch of the imagination and uh, not qualified to be a coach, except that five-year-old soccer teams, it's just all about, you know, run this way, not that. Don't kick it in your own goal. The other guy, you know, and that was pretty much the extent of it. So I'm coaching this soccer team, and there's a little boy Aaron's age that lived in our neighborhood who was uh, number six in the, out of seven children in a Mormon family that lived nearby us. And so we kind of being friends and just trying to kind of live as Jesus would have us live in this soccer team and be in a relationship. And the boy had an older sister who was the fifth in the birth order that 
we didn't understand at the time, but there was some kind of a natural affinity and an attraction that happened. And, and we just really liked her, and she really liked us, and she started spending time. Now I can look back and say, God was working on her, the Holy Spirit was preparing her, and he was intersecting our two lives together to create this relationship. So she'd come over to our house, and she'd help Paula with the kids, and we would take her on outings, we took her on camping trips, and we just became really close, and we uh, enjoyed her, and she enjoyed us, and it was this great relationship. And then we moved from Fairbanks to Anchorage, so it's 350 miles away, and kind of lost touch for a while. And during that time, uh, the family went through a divorce. This, what looked on the outside like this intact Mormon family wasn't, and, and the family fell apart, and the mom was kind of dealing with the aftermath of this train wreck divorce and uh, trying to take care. I think she had five kids still at home and just overwhelmed. She calls us up one day and says, hey, could she come live with you guys? She really likes you guys, and I just need some relief. And we said, sure. So we brought her in to live with us, and it didn't last because um, after the divorce, the girl was just too um, needy of her mom, and, and she just was homesick, and we had to send her back. So she went back to live with mom, and, and life didn't go very well for her, and, and over time, she got uh, pretty depressed and, and ended up suicidal. And uh, mom was going to have her uh, go through a residential treatment program, and there was a window between when that would open up and, and the present, and mom called us again and says, hey, can she come? live with you guys for a while. We said, sure. So we brought her into our house. And now she's 15, and we're able to articulate our Jesus to her in a better way, and she could understand it better. And, uh, and she was kind of the Mormon family had fallen apart, and she was very open to hear about Jesus. And about two weeks into this experience, um, I looked at her one night on the couch. I said, do you think you need a residential treatment program? And she looked and said, no, I need Jesus. Okay. And so she got saved. I mean, just miraculously transformed by God into this new creation. And on one hand, that was like awesome, super exciting, fun. On the other hand, it, it created some problems because <laughs> now we had some um, Mormon relatives who really thought we were the devil incarnate uh, because we had proselytized one of their own. And, and so there was all this tension and drama with the family. And so she ends up staying with us and... Um, and, you know, I was pretty young at the time. I'm trying to raise a teenage girl. I got boys with bad intentions hanging around the house. It's all this stuff, you know. And, um, and I'm having a gripe session with God one morning. You know, that was my devotion. I'm like grumbling to God. Uh, hey, uh, you know, she has a mom and a dad, and I'm doing all the work, and I'm paying all the bills, and this just doesn't really seem very fair. And God answered me, not audibly, but it might as well have been. It was very profound, and he said, Take her as one of your own. And I understood what he meant because she had been living in our house as a guest, and God was saying, I want her to have equal footing with the other children in your house. So I'm kind of like shaken. It was kind of a burning bush experience for me, like, okay. I felt like Job in chapter 40, like, mm, you know, I, I shut up. And um, I waited till the end of the day, and I talked to Paula about it, and she went, he kind of said the same thing to me. And so we knew. We were, we were in it. And uh, so she lived with us from age 15 to age 19, and uh, we had a tumultuous relationship over those four years. There were things that didn't go well, but, but during the course of that four years, we saw a number of her friends uh, come to Christ. We saw her little brother come to Christ. We saw three of her sisters come to Christ, and we saw her mom sitting on her couch 
renouncing Mormonism and lifting up her hands and surrender to Jesus. And we're like, oh, God, you're so good. This is amazing, you know. And so at 19, she met a very wonderful, godly Christian man, and uh, I had the privilege of performing their wedding. And the night before the wedding, she wrote a a note to us, and and she thanked us for all that we'd done for her and said, most of all, for the gift of Jesus, that you taught us, taught me about Jesus and what you've given. And then she said, when we are able to, we want to do the same for others. And then she and her husband made good on that promise, and they took in various teenagers and had them live in their house for a while, discipled them. Uh, They went into youth ministry, and they led a youth group. And then eventually they adopted a nine-year-old girl who'd been in the foster system all of her life. And it's, it's pretty hard when you're nine years in the foster system, the adoption options are getting pretty thin. And they took her in, they adopted her as, as one of their own. And then a few years later, a, a half-brother of that girl turned up in the system and they adopted him. So they now have four uh, biological children and two adoptive children that they have raised to know Jesus and... and um, and they are our extended family. And after we're done here with Aaron's family, we're going to drive up. They live in northern Washington. We're going to spend a couple of days with them. And uh, that family is just such a blessing. And, and um, the um, last summer, I had the privilege of performing the wedding for the oldest adoptive daughter. So now my spiritual granddaughter, I get to do her wedding. And, and, uh, and this is just like so awesome. And after we get everything cleaned up, we're done with the wedding. We're sitting around the campfire and... And, and the mom and her three sisters and her mom, the grandma, are all there. And I'm realizing these are all people who at one time in my relationship with them did not know Jesus. And I was reminded of Jeremiah 31 where it says, A time will come when you won't say, Know the Lord, for you will all know him from the least of these to the greatest. And I'm sitting there with this circle of people around the campfire who all love and serve Jesus and didn't at one time. And you know where it began? On the side of a soccer field. A kid in the neighborhood. Just a relationship, okay? Now, um, I'm here unashamedly to challenge and recruit you to live a life of relational evangelism. And some of you may be called to foster and to adopt, and that's awesome. But I don't want you to think... You know, just the story I told, that somebody has to live with you for this to be played out, okay? This could be the person that works down the hall from you. This can be the person that lives down the road from you. This can be the the friends of your children at their school. It, it, It doesn't matter what the setting is, but to look around. God has given each one of us a network of relationships, and in those relationships, there are people that the Holy Spirit is working on, that he's drawing, that he's preparing their heart to receive, And if we want to be a part of what he's doing, we have to engage with them relationally, and that will probably cost us some sacrifice. We'll probably have to make some sacrifices of our time and space and money to engage them relationally and serve them and meet their practical needs. But it's also going to require us to speak and represent Jesus and talk about the wonderful gift that we've been given, okay? And um, I would be you know, dishonest if I just left you with my one glorious story that I told. There are many other really wonderful stories, too. But there's also a good number of very, very tragic stories. There's a bunch of kids that I have invested my heart in, and they've made terrible choices, and and they're 
they're gone now. They've made poor choices and, and they didn't live. And uh, there are times when my heart has been broken. And it has cost me something, okay? It's cost me a lot of money. I've, I've raised a lot of kids on my nickel, okay? And, and it did cost me something physically in that way. It's, it's cost me a lot of sleepless nights, and I attribute a lot of the gray hair I have to some of the kids who didn't treat me really well. Um, it, it's cost my reputation at times. I've been rejected by people that I poured my heart into. I've given my best, and they spat on it. All of that stuff has happened, okay? So it's not all just happy, wonderful Pollyanna stories, but I have the privilege now of looking back on a 30-year on a life of living this kind of life sacrificially, engaging with people in relationship, telling them about Jesus, and, and watching what happens. And if I had the choice today to go back and reset and start 30 years ago, I would do it all over again because it's worth it, okay? There's no amount of money in the bank or toys or experiences that could compare with, if you could put up that last picture, just that, okay? I, a year ago, I'm in a swimming pool. It's a birthday party for a couple of my spiritual grandchildren. A couple of them are in this picture, and they've, they've been adopted by families that were not my own, but that I am now dad to, and, and, and they have adopted these children. So I'm in this swimming pool, and there's about 35 or 40 kids splashing around, and I realized that there were more kids in that pool who were not biological children than the natural-born children. They were foster and they were adopt. And what had happened was, another story for another day if I get a chance, but we had planted a church with a bunch of people that were Aaron's age and teenagers, and they grew up together. And, uh, and all these kids watched Paula and I living our life of just relational evangelism, taking kids in, serving the least of these, and doing those practical things. And as they saw us do it, it planted seeds in them. And they're now in their 20s and 30s, and they're going out, and they're taking in foster kids, and they're adopting these children, and, and they are living on mission and doing this stuff. And I'll tell you, I'll take this any day over any bank account or life experience I can have that this world has to offer, because this is eternal treasure, okay? And so uh, I'm boldly inviting you, be a part, however it plays out may not be foster care for you, but you might be called to take somebody in to live with you, you know? But it will cost you something. To be on mission for God, you're going to have to give up some of the convenience and comfort that we have, and you're going to have to live some sacrifice to be able to actually serve the calling of God. And in time, you will see fruit come forward. And um, not just for me, but for my children. I know Aaron would tell you, but my daughter and my younger son would tell you the same thing. It was sacrificial to them to live the way we did. They gave up. They had to share their room. They gave up the shotgun seat in the car, you know. Um, they gave up a lot of time with their parents, you know. There, there was sacrifice that they had to make. And we told them why we were doing it. And all of them would tell you to this day that they're glad we live that way. Um, they missed out on some things, but they got some things that they couldn't have gotten another way. And they would all tell you that they believe they're a better person, better Christian, because of that life of, of sacrifice and serving in that way. And so, um, go, go. Let's do it, okay? I'm, I'm really excited for where this church is at. You guys have weathered a storm. 
You've emphasized in the replanting your relationship to God and your covenant relationship to one another. You're solid. You're there. Now this month, we're kind of putting a little exhortation for go out on mission. Go. Let's see what Jesus wants to do through this group of people in this part of the world, okay? Close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you, first of all, more than anything else, that you are a missionary, that you came on mission to rescue broken people like me. I thank you for that. And uh, God, if there is anybody here in this room that maybe feels like they need rescued, I pray they would recognize your Holy Spirit drawing them, speaking words of life and hope and comfort. And God, for all of us, um, I throw myself in it. Um, I struggle with being consistent in maintaining a witness of your goodness and glory to a lost and dying world. And I ask you to break our hearts for the lost and dying people in the world and give us your empathy, your compassion, your vision for the gospel to go forth and transform lives. And may we be faithful with the opportunities you provide and grow in grace as we do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We say thanks to my dad for, for teaching us and sharing that thing. And I do wholeheartedly agree. I mean, there's, there's so much sacrifice, but it's been worth it. And it's been such a joy um, to even just share with this church family uh, a bit of just kind of how, now you, know, now you know some of the rest of the story. If he tells other stories at the barbecue later, those aren't true. But that stuff that he just shared was good, so... I want to call us to a time of response now. We're going to respond as we do in a a few ways. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. If you're somebody who's a guest, uh, please don't feel like you're under obligation to give. You're welcome to if you'd like, but this is something that we do as Christians to celebrate and worship the God who has given us everything in Christ Jesus. So if the financial stewards would come forward now, please, and and collect the offering. If you'd like more information on how to give online or to text to give, that's on your Connect card. While they're collecting the offering, let me just read some discussion questions for you that you can talk about this week in your community groups and in your homes. And so the first one is this. Of those three relational categories, think of that triangle, uh, which one is strongest in your life and why? How has God maybe gifted you, wired you, uh, and then you're strong in an area? And then number two, of those, which one is weak? Where do you need to grow? And actually, practically speaking, how is God asking you to grow? Maybe it's worship. Maybe it's uh, fellowship with other Christians, or maybe it's the evangelistic side. Uh, number three, read Luke 10. That's the, the other version of this, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and Isaiah 58, 6 through 11, another passage that um, just speaks to God's heart for broken and lost people. And then what is it that these passages are asking us to do and, and, and look for that practical application? Uh, number four, next question, please. Uh, which lost people, what lost people does God want you to be praying for? Write down their names and share with your community group. And I, I put that before you as a way for you to seek accountability. I think sometimes as Christians we could say, oh, I will pray for these people or I want to pray. But this is a way to actually share that with those in your community so that we can together as a body be lifting up these people in prayer that God would meet them and God would save them and God who has drawn them right now might even want to use you to speak those words of life into their life. And then number five, commit to praying for these people specifically ask God for for, uh, 
steps to engage relationally and ask others from your community group to pray with you. So not just discussing time this week in our groups. We really want to actually take time and pray that we could uh, embody the message of the gospel. We could uh, be Jesus' representative to these people who need to see his gospel and his grace lived out. Another way that we're going to respond today is we're going to respond through the celebration of the Lord's table, through communion. This is where all who are Christians take the bread, we dip it into the wine or the juice, and we celebrate that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out that we might be forgiven and adopted into his family. And so if you're a Christian, even if you're someone who's a guest with us, you're welcome to celebrate at the table. If you're someone who is not a Christian, our invitation to you today is this. Give your sin to Jesus. Receive his grace. Receive his salvation and come forward and join us at the table. And then lastly, we're going to sing, and we're going to celebrate God. And so I invite you, if you would, to stand now. We're going to begin our time of response. I'll pray, and then you can come forward for uh, communion and begin singing as, as uh, you feel led. God, I thank you that you have loved us perfectly, and that, God, we love only because you have first loved us. And God, I ask today as we celebrate through uh, these, these elements, through the bread and the wine, God, and as we celebrate through singing, we would be reminded of how much you have loved us and the length that you went to save us. And we would celebrate, we would rejoice in our Savior. And I pray that we would be thankful for our fellow brothers and sisters here in this room today. God, and I also pray that we would be uh, burdened with compassion and love for those who do not yet know Jesus. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.